You've always been close with this friend in school, despite of your academic rivalry. Your teachers will keep advising you to get involved in more extracurricular activities and not just work in order to stand out quite like her. This friend of yours is already blogging about the life under Taliban for the BBC. She spoke out publicly on behalf of girls and our right to learn. Then, one day, she's sitting right next to you on a bus journey home, when a gunman walks on a bus asking who is Malala, after which they shoot right at her. She is Malala, and this is her story. Maya is the name. Assassination Attempts is the game. It's the theme of the month on my podcast, By All Means Necessary, on another channel. And on the podcast, if you don't already listen to it, I start off with the event and then go back in time, as if we are the armchair detectives, which we technically are, going into the background of both the perp and the victim. And then, in the end, we discuss the aftermath of the event and the motives of the perp. And usually when I read a book on a case, this, by the way, is obviously an autobiography. If you haven't read the book yourself, I would definitely suggest this should be on the top of your must-read book list. This book is everything. So it's not a true crime book. But usually when I go into the books, when it comes to research for the case, I don't really know what to expect. I don't know how much, you know, other research I'm going to have to do. None. I literally had to check where both parties are today to kind of conclude and wrap this up. Because this book is so well-written, so eloquently written, there's no unnecessary pages to it, and it simply answers all of your questions within the perfect length. It goes into the background so you understand why Taliban would have attacked her in the first place, so you understand her own history as well as the history of the Taliban, and then it kind of like wraps it all up into where she is now and how this affected her life. It's just so such a brilliant book. Just please, just buy it, even if you hate me, even if you don't want to watch this video, just read this book. Also, for the entirety of that read and for the entirety of this video, I'm just gonna keep reminding you that Malala in this story was, well, young and then 14, 15, and 16. 16 when she actually wrote this book. Because you might start wondering where you were at, what stages in your life you were at during those ages, and how that compares, or rather, does not compare at all to where she was. Yes, I am saying you might start questioning every single decision you have ever made and what path you are following and where your life is going. You might have a bit of an existential crisis, and it's a good thing. And also, just a bit of a warning, I won't be posting anything too graphic in terms of visuals in this video, but this story is heavy. Like, by the end of this video, it's a heavy story, it is a heavy read, so just a pre-warning before diving in. That being said, let me tell you the story of Malala Yousafzai. 9th of October 2012, the day that everything has changed for Malala, began just like any other day for her, except it was school exams day. Malala at the time lived in Swat Valley in Pakistan, sort of like north of Pakistan, a couple of cities above Islamabad. She went to this school that was founded by her dad, called Kushal School. And when you hear that, if you live in a Western country, you probably think, okay, so she was her father's daughter, she must have been privileged, and everything was just sort of given to her. 
and based on everything from the book that's anything but true. Malala worked really hard and she was really studious. She was really into her books. And on top of that, she knew that her dad wouldn't just give her away any awards. She had to earn them. And nor would the teachers. So she had a couple of girls in class that she would always be in a competition with. One of them that kind of motivated her to get up that morning was her nemesis, sort of, called Malika. The two of them were friends, but twice Malika came on top of the class and that meant that Malala didn't get her, you know, little plastic prizes that she was proudly displaying in her room. And that was what really pushed her to get up this morning. Because you see, Malala, like myself, most of the people probably watching, wasn't really a morning person. She was that person that, like, you wake up once and she's like, a couple of more minutes, dead, like, I'll, I'll wake up, I'll get there. And then a few minutes later, she's like, okay, I must get up, get to these exams. These kind of mornings were standard for Malala. She would sort of have a line, like her dad would have to nudge her a couple of times for her to wake up. And then she would go to school, where she was in year nine as a 15-year-old, and she would go to school six mornings a week, where she would spend mornings doing chemical equations, or studying Urdu grammar, writing stories in English, or drawing diagrams of blood circulations in science classes, and most of her classmates wanted to be doctors. There are a couple of things that are going on through Malala's mind as she's just groggy waking up this morning. The first one is that she needs to do well in these exams to beat Malika. And she's kind of looking at all of these trophies and medals and just thinking like, okay, need to stay calm, need to do well today, need to appear to school on time. The second thought that's going on through her head is how excited kids would be about different classes. Mostly science, because a lot of kids in her school wanted to become doctors. And she's just thinking how ridiculous it is that the outside world would see something like that as a threat. But outside the school door, she knew that there was a constant looming threat by Taliban, who thinks that girls shouldn't go to school. We will break this down later, but due to this, Taliban seeing schools and girls going to schools as a threat especially, of course, her family was a target. Her father owned a school, and both Ziauddin, her dad, and Malala were extremely outspoken about education. So that is Malala's third foot, this sort of like nagging her in the back of her head, and that's because she started taking bus upon the advice by her mom, rather upon demands by her mom, because her mom was scared that somebody might attack her because the whole family was receiving threats, whether it was in the newspapers, whether it was directly. And also her dad's fellow campaigner, Zahid Khan, has been shot dead. And everybody has been telling her dad that he was next. But Malala would always tell her mom, like, okay, no problem, I'll take a bus, it's just a five-minute ride, but sure, if you want to take a bus, it's fine. But nobody will attack a girl. I'm a 15-year-old girl, like... Taliban won't attack me. So those are the thoughts that are going through her head as she went to school. 
She goes there, she has her exams of the day, and after the school day, she's just waiting for the bus back home. Usually her and her friend group would kind of stay at school. They would either chat about the school day or on this day, they would chat about the exams, different questions. So they wouldn't take the first bus home, but they would rather take the last one. Her mom was not worried. They knew that she will be coming home on one of these buses, that she was responsible. The second bus comes along and these buses, they remind me of kind of like tuk-tuks in Thailand or Eastern Asian countries, but I think in Urdu they're called Dina or Daina. It's basically like a Toyota van with three benches that are parallel, so one in the middle and two on the sides. So the girls put their veils back onto their heads and ran onto this bus, sat next to each other and put their rucksacks in between their feet and they were just on their way home. As they turned the road, they were just a couple of minutes from Malala's house and 200 meters from the next checkpoint. A man steps into the middle of the road and waves this van down. He asked the driver, is this the Kushal school bus? The driver said yes, and then this man said that he needs information about some children, so the driver says that he should go to the school office. As these two men are chatting, another man starts approaching the back of the van, and Malala's friend kind of just looks at her, and she says, oh, look, like, this might be a journalist, because Malala at this point was already speaking at different events. So her friend Moniba actually thought, okay, somebody is coming to ask you to speak on their next event. But this man didn't look like a journalist to Malala or rest of her friends. He was wearing a cap, and he had a handkerchief under his mouth. And then he removed it and asked, who is Malala? Nobody would say anything, but everybody looked at Malala, and her face was the only one that wasn't covered. She was only wearing her veil. And this guy kind of swung onto the tailboard of the van, so he was directly facing her. And this is when he pulled out a gun and shot her right in the face. During this moment, Malala dunked down and put her face into her hands, which will become crucial because of the bullet trajectory. Just a quick warning, I'm going to put the animation of that bullet trajectory now on the screen, so if you don't want to see it, just turn away as I'm describing what exactly happened. So the first bullet went through Malala's left eye socket and out under her left shoulder. As the bullet hit her and she slumped over, blood coming out of her left ear, Two other bullets that this guy fired hit the girls next to her. One bullet went into this girl Shazia's left hand, and the third one went through her left shoulder and into the upper right arm of another girl called Kaina Triaz. Before she blacked out, and also after, after speaking with her friends, they have confirmed that the gunman's hand has been shaking. So, this is how the book starts, and then she says, who is Malala? I'm Malala, and this is my story. So, let's go into her background, into everything preceding this event. We're going back in history here, all the way back to the origins of the Yusufzai tribe. So, most of the people living in the Swat Valley, most of the people living in this area were from the Yusufzai tribe, originally from Kandahar. Yusufzai tribes are also spread across Pakistan and Afghanistan, and they're one of the biggest Pashtun tribes. In her family, her grandparents would pass on the stories about how they were scared of being occupied by the British. The British controlled most of the lands, and the Yusufzai tribes didn't even have the ruler. 
So one day, when they were fed up of just constant battles, they decided to find an impartial man to rule the area and to resolve their disputes on behalf of their own tribes. And in 1949, two years after the creation of Pakistan, Badshah Sahib abdicated in favor of his elder son, Miangul Abdul Haq Jahanzeb. Most of the people in this area would agree that Jahanzeb's reign was the golden period in their history, because his dad brought peace, they brought peace between the Khans and the British, but his son brought prosperity. Jahanzeb was great in terms of building things like hospitals and roads, and he was quite a passionate leader, inspired because his father was illiterate himself. But despite of him fighting for education, there was no freedom of expression at this time. And this is the time when Malala's dad was born. In 1969, the year her dad was born, Swat Valley became part of Pakistan's northwest frontier province. Things have changed for Pakistan when Malala's dad was about 10 years old. Just after Christmas in 1979, the Russians invaded their neighbor, Afghanistan. And as at the time, and still today, to be honest, Soviets and Russians in general were the Americans' number one enemy, the president of Pakistan, General Zia, decided to use that to their own advantage. Billions of dollars starting flooding into the Pakistan to fund the army, and General Zia was even invited to meet President Reagan at the time, and also the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the UK. The support wasn't only coming from the West, it wasn't only coming from the US, but also from the other Arab countries, who saw these areas as fellow Islamic countries that were under the attack from the infidels. This meant that money poured from the Arab world, in particular Saudi Arabia, and they would be matching anything that the US would send. On top of the people funding Afghanistan and funding Pakistan would be a Saudi millionaire called Osama bin Laden. When his dad got to his teenage years, he remembers that one day young men were starting to be asked to fight for the Russians in the name of Islam. What her dad and none of his friends knew was that this particular organization will become the SWAT's Taliban later. But he was 12 then, and it was still too early for him to go to the army, so he was still sort of sitting on it and thinking about it. Now, as her dad was trying to make this difficult decision, whether he should become a martyr, whether he should join this army, he was praying a lot. And attending these prayers, he met Malala's mother's brother, Faiz Mohammed, and started mixing with the family of her future wife. Now, there was one problem. Immediately as the two of them met, Malala's mom and dad, they knew that they liked each other. Which was great, because it meant that nobody would have to arrange anybody's marriage, which was still a custom at the time, that this would indeed be a love match. Her mom would always say that she appreciated his mind, and her dad would say that he admired her beauty. But the problem was that the two grandfathers weren't getting along. Her mom, Pekai's dad, actually got her own dad, Ziauddin, to wait for nine months before he approved the proposal, before he approved giving the hand of her daughter to him. 
And from the book and how Malala describes her family's relationship, it just seems so much different to her than any other arranged marriage relationships that she has seen around town. And that is because her dad would always ask her mom on her opinions. He never minded the fact that Pekai was actually illiterate, that she didn't learn how to read or write up until she started actually talking to him, and up until really the children were born. He never minded that. He always asked her for advice, and, you know, that would kind of receive mockery from a lot of men in the area. It's like, oh, what are you doing asking a woman for advice? But he said that she always knew how to read people, and he would always tell her about his day, and then she would give him advice about who would be a genuine friend to him and who wouldn't. And that would become useful because Yahudin Malala's dad started his career in public speaking. When her dad Ziauddin started college, it was an important moment in Pakistan's history. General Zia, the one that brought all of that prosperity into the country from the US, was killed in a mysterious plane crash, which means this called for the new national elections to take place, and those were won by Benazir Bhutto, who was a female, and the daughter of a prime minister that was executed when Ziauddin was only a boy. Now, with a woman in power, there was a lot of optimism about the future. A lot of organizations that were banned under a man were now open and active, which meant that Ziauddin got involved in student politics and also became known as a talented speaker and debater. Because of how powerful his speeches was, because how great he was as a debater, he was made the general secretary to the Pakhtun Students' Federation that wanted equal rights for all Pashtuns. Then he finished college, he graduated with master's in English, and for the first few years after graduating, Ziauddin worked as an English teacher in a private college. But the salary was really low, basically unlivable if you want to have a big family. He would only earn about, what is, 12 pounds a month. In rupees, it's 1,600. And, well, the grandfathers now, the one that allowed him to marry his daughter and his own dad, complain that he isn't contributing to the household. He isn't helping the rest of the family. And also, well, can't really create his own. What are they going to live on, on a teacher's salary? Regardless of this, because of his political influences, he gets another man in these circles to invest into starting a school with him. So, he would be the investor, and then Zeudin would take care of everything. Building, finding teachers, getting it going. And at first, the school only had three teachers and three students, which... If you were kind of doing the math, doesn't really make sense. It just meant that it would be in debts and wouldn't really be profiting because, well, student tuition out of free students just won't cut it for you to pay free teacher salaries. On top of that, on top of all of these struggles, this was also when Pekai, Malala's mom, was expecting her first child. And this was 1995, and this child ended up being stillborn, and they suspected that this was due to the hygiene issues in the area. Unfortunately, there wasn't much time for them to process the heartbreak over the stillbirth because her dad was in a big financial trouble. He couldn't pay up the rent for the school and also he couldn't pay all of these teachers. On top of that, as if things couldn't get any worse, a flood happened. And these are not, you know, some floods that you see in the UK where, yes, they're terrifying, yes, like, it looks like 
you know, all of the roads are flooded. These are some powerful floods that take everything on their way, that destroy both his house and his school. The neighbor took them in, so they stayed there until the water went down and then they cleared what was left of the house. Everything was muddy, smelling of damp. And then the inspection came to his school and wanted really a bribe for the father to get rid of them. Otherwise, they would have imposed a fine onto him to pay. On top of, well, basically needing to renovate the whole school now, which is already the money that he didn't have. So they just imposed another fine on top of all of that. And just as her father thought, maybe the school is just not meant to be. This was when Malala was born. She was born on 12th of July, 1997. And because of the whole financial situation of the family, she wasn't born in the hospital. Neither did they have a doula, a midwife to help out with the birth. So she was born at home with a neighbor helping out. Pekai Malala's mom was actually even afraid to go to Ziaudin and tell him that she just birthed a girl. Because the birth of girls versus boys are treated completely differently. The rifles would go off, the celebrations would go off if a boy was to be born. But if a girl was to be born, they would kind of hide them under the curtain because the girls were just there to make food for the boys, later for the men, and to give birth to further children. But her dad was different from the rest of Pashtun men, and he never thought the same. He saw Malala, and he just fell in love with her eyes, with her smile, straight away. He even asked his friends to immediately throw the dried fruits, throw some coins into the cradle, which is a custom that they would usually only do for boys. And he said that there is something different with this child. And since Malala's birth their lack of the family has changed. But let's first just mention briefly, where did her name come from? Because I find this story to like just be so relevant and so pertinent to who Malala became. When uh, I saw her for the first time, a very newborn child, and I looked into her eyes, I fell in love with her, believe me. I love her. I love her. A pattern that you will be seeing all throughout this book and something that is really important in Malala's culture is the honor that they get from hospitality. Hospitality is crucial. You will see it from when I spoke about how they helped out her mom with a birth, when I spoke out how they were helped out by the family during the flood, how Ziaudin's friend helped him fund his school, and throughout many other instances in this story. Hospitality would be considered a sign of honor in the Pashtun culture, and they would even have the saying, without honor, the world counts for nothing. Malala was named after a great heroine of Afghanistan called Malalai of Maiwand. And the story about Malalai is truly about this honor and about coming together against outsiders trying to conquer your land. Malalai was the daughter of the shepherd in Maiwand, and as both her father and the man that she was supposed to marry were fighting in this war against the British occupation of their country, herself, among the other women, were tending to the wounded. And it was then that she realized that they seemed to be losing the war. So what did she do? She marched onto the battlefield in front of everybody and shouted, Young love, if you do not fall in the battle of Maiwand, then by God, someone is saving you as a symbol of shame. She was killed under fire, but her words and bravery inspired men to turn this battle around. 
The soldiers would end up destroying the entire brigade, which would become one of the worst defeats in the history of the British army. Everybody reproached her dad because Malala's name means grief-stricken. But what her dad saw in this story was the bravery, was the honor. There was something that was so innate into the Pashto culture. He would see the truth of the traditional Pashto saying, Rather I receive your bullet-riddled body with honor than news of your cowardice on the battlefield. So no pressure, you know. She only has to live up to the greatest heroine of her time. And Malala knew from the get-go, from very early age, because, well, her father would tell her the story of Malala of Maiwen, but also just, like, from within, she knew that she didn't want to live the life that she would see women around her living. Two years after Malala, her brother Kushal was born, and then five years later came another brother, Atal. And this, again, didn't mean that her father treated Malala in a different way. Neither did her mother. They both kind of just, like, passed on the cradle and the clothes to the sons. They didn't treat them as anything special, which was yet again unusual as to how boys were treated in their culture. From her early childhood, as Malala and her friends would be playing on the street, she realized that as the girls that she was playing with would be getting older, she wouldn't see them as much. A lot of them would retrieve to their homes in order to help out their family, to help out bring up the siblings, to help their moms out, to cook for them. And they wouldn't show their faces up much outside. And when they would, it would be accompanied by a male figure, whether it was their father or their brother, even if the brother would be a five-year-old. It was just the tradition. It was just their culture. So from the very early age, as Malala would be sitting on the rooftop of her house, looking beyond upon the Swat Valley, which is, by the way, beautiful. I mean, she doesn't stop talking about how beautiful this place is. And one thing that Malala does not do, she does not freaking lie, okay? This place is literally postcard gorgeous. Just like insane. It has valleys, it has like a ski resort. It just looks like a perfect holiday resort. So as she would be sitting on a rooftop, kind of like daydreaming, she couldn't escape the situation that her family was in. When she was born, the family was still really poor. She still found herself sleeping together with her mother and the father in one room, and the other room in the house was for guests. They had no bathroom, no kitchen. Her mom would cook on the wood fire and they would wash clothes in school because the tap was running there. By the time that she was born, the school had about five or six teachers and around a hundred pupils, paying a hundred rupees a month. And her dad was still doing everything in the school. He was the teacher, he was the accountant, the principal, he was the janitor if they need be, because he was also sweeping the floors. He was their marketing team doing the advertising for the school. But still, as Malala would be sitting on that roof, she knew that once her dad would pay up all of the salaries to the teachers, there was little money left for the family. And as she saw this, she didn't know how to change this, how to change this in the future. That was until she started going to school, and she realized she was really good at it, and it was changing her attitude towards everything else. 
When it came to her early education, there were really a couple of events pointed out in this book that formed who Malala was as a person. The first one came around when she was about seven years of age. She was kind of famous in class for being good at everything, from badminton to singing, which she didn't particularly think she was good, to maths, to like all of these different classes. That is until a girl named Malika came to her school. Before Malika, or I think it might be pronounced Malka, I'm probably mispronouncing these names left, right, and center here. Malala only really had one competitor in her class, and that was Moniba. And this girl Moniba was really good when it comes to, like, writing and presentation, but Malala really knew the importance of the content, really the importance of showing off your knowledge. So that year, when the end of the year exams came around, and this newbie, this newcomer from a different school, Malka, came up first, Malala couldn't handle it. She went home and she was crying and crying while her mom was consoling her. And this is when she discovered her competitive nature. This second story was really the precedent for the other event that marked up her childhood. So, a lesser-known fact about Malala was that she had a great potential beyond becoming a Nobel Prize winner, speaking on behalf of the girls about the education, speaking against Taliban, all of that, to become a really successful kleptomaniac. Yeah, a lesser known fact, you could really say. So, she would go to this girl's house across from hers, and they would kind of, like, just play around, you know, normal girl stuff, because she was still really small. But then, one time that this girl was at her house, she nicked something from her, and Malala noticed that she had stolen something. So, every single time that Malala would go to visit now, she would kind of take, like, some of her toy jewelry. Then she would take an actual small toy. And she just got into this loop where she couldn't stop. She started stealing from her friend. That was until one day her family faced her, and they said, like, we were waiting for you to come out to tell us the truth, but you just never did. And they asked her, are you trying to bring the shame to the family because we can't afford all of these things? Malala immediately felt really bad. She just wanted to make up for this, and she begged her mom not to tell her dad. But because the two of them had such a great marriage, of course, she knew that her dad would eventually know. So, she wanted to make up for this and, well, never steal again, but she didn't think that this would be enough. At the same time, her dad was running this public speaking competition in school. So, in order to impress her dad, Malala went and put her name down for it. During this competition, Malala didn't win. She came second. Her friend Moniba won. But she discovered this passion inside. She discovered the passion of putting things down on paper, and she started improving on these speeches. So, she would be writing up a speech and then sort of trying to deliver it in her room, deciding, okay, this needs changing, and then attempting to change them around. So, this really brought up this passion in her that would mark her for the rest of her life. And when I told you Malala's birth turned things around for this family, I wasn't kidding. They weren't prosperous, but this school expanded now. They were really investing all of the money in school and literally just, like, survival at home. They were never about showing off their wealth. They put everything into education. They expanded the school to now be free buildings. It was also hosting 800 students. And you would hear that and think the school in itself must be making so much money. But her dad really didn't care. He 
he would give up about 100 free places to the students. If they came to him and said, I can't pay up for the tuition for this year, he would still keep them on, because he understood how valuable education is. And her dad himself continued writing poetry. He would write on the controversial topics like honor killings and women's rights, and he would attend these public events and would be getting rewards. But what this meant was that the family wasn't seeing him as much. Them not seeing Ziaudin as often would be the least of their problems. And Malala's life is about to change forever, without her probably even realizing it at this point, because 9-11 attacks happen. And as she mentions in the book, these attacks might have changed the whole world, but their family was living in the epicenter of everything. Osama bin Laden, who was the leader of the Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, the leader of the Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, was living in Kandahar when the attack took place. And this meant that the Americans now sent thousands of troops to Afghanistan to catch him and overthrow the Taliban regime that they suspected was protecting him. And remember when we discussed the history and I walked you through the Russians invading and the Americans being an ally? Well, now, due to everything we spoke about then, that will become suddenly important, the hospitality, the previous history, well, the tables have turned. Americans were now looking for Osama bin Laden really close to where Malala lived. They would deploy the airstrikes, and when Al-Qaeda militants would flee from the Afghanistan during the U.S. bombing, the U.S. Army started believing that they have fled to the nearby areas, using them as safe haven and taking advantage of Pashtun hospitality. Malala was 10 when the Taliban came to her valley. They started appearing in groups, and they would be armed with knives and kalashnikovs, and first emerged in the hilly area of SWAT. The goal here was to really tap into the nation's already conservative views, and to radicalize it towards Islam. And by doing that, the nation in itself would protect Osama bin Laden. They would fall under the Taliban rule. And the best way to do this was propaganda. And the man that was to spread this propaganda was one scary-looking dude called Maulana Fazlullah, who was a 28-year-old who has taken over the movement's leadership. He knew most people in the area wouldn't have a TV or would be illiterate, but a lot of them would have radios. And then what he could tap into was those people listening to radios, spreading his message, or, you know, that culture of hospitality. A lot of people would be in each other's homes during dinner or during breakfast, and that is when he would broadcast his message. It started off as limited. There would be a broadcast between 8 to 10 at night, and again in the morning between 7 and 9. And at first, he would use these broadcasts to encourage people to adopt good habits and abandon practices that he said himself were bad. He would advise men to keep their beards, but to give up habits like smoking. He would tell people they should stop using heroin and hash. But then he went a step further, telling people how to correctly wash their body parts for prayers. And sometimes these broadcasts would be reasonable. He would be talking in normal voice, and it would just sound like, I'm advising you how to live your life. But eventually, these broadcasts were more and more intense and just full of fire and full of rage. Six months within these broadcasts, he was so successful that he even got people to get rid of 
any other literature or content they were consuming. For example, Malala really at that time, just a showcase of her innocence, was into Twilight. I mean, she still is. She was really into the Twilight books. But Fazlula would keep encouraging people to get rid of everything, not to watch this Bollywood series that would be showcased on TV, to get rid of all the CDs, DVDs that they would have, to throw their own TVs in the streets. He would even organize these meetups on the streets, sort of like a campfire, where people were to burn all of the literature, all of the CDs, all of the DVDs that weren't given by him, that weren't provided by Taliban, that weren't radicalized. By this point, people were only allowed to keep radios. The shops started closing, and they were paid off by Taliban, so they kind of closed voluntarily, all of those CD shops, DVD shops. And Malala's family decided to keep their TV at their own risk, really. They would only watch all of these Bollywood series at a really low volume, and they kind of hid it in a cupboard that can be closed, because the Taliban people started barging into people's houses to see if they have kept anything else that wasn't really approved by them. Soon enough, for Fazlullah, these preachings weren't enough. He really wanted to tap and change people's lifestyles as well. So even for people whose households they didn't barge into to take their TVs away, all of these other series were completely switched off. They weren't broadcasted any longer. Men and women were both forbidden to go into barber shops. Barber shops were closed. Women were forbidden to go into bazaars to buy food or anything else, really. They had to cover their faces in burkas when they would appear in public, and even then, they had to be accompanied by a male. And these shopkeepers were also advised not to let women in. They would be beaten up by Taliban men. They would be whipped if a woman was to be seen within their shops. What this reminds me of is, like, Umbridge's reign in Hogwarts, because every day, like, a new edict would come. And it's unbelievable for you and me listening to this so far away, so distanced from this, that it took about six months for all of this to happen. But if you think about it consequentially, like, day by day, it didn't come all together. If you listen to somebody being broadcasted on the radio every single day, you are more likely to buy into what they're saying. You are more likely to be influenced by them. So every day, bit by bit, as they introduce something new, you buy into it. You think like you're devout. You think everything else that you do is haram. This, however, started taking a toll on her dad, because the teachers in school would sort of come up to him one day and say, I can't come to school for the next few days. And that would be like, why? What the hell? You're a teacher in this school. And they would say they need to participate building mosques, erecting different buildings for Fazlula. And the dad would just get so pissed off because he was like, how is this guy so influential? Pretending to be this so-called scholar, but actually spreading ignorance. Within that first year, people were so radicalized that Fazlullah began holding a shura, which is kind of a local court, meaning that he was now deciding what justice is in the area. And people, according to the book, sometimes preferred this because the actual courts would take times, the actual trials. So sometimes they would go to Fazlullah willingly to sort out a beef with a neighbor, for example. 
But what this meant on a bigger scale was that Fazlullah's men were allowed to patrol the streets. They would create these checkpoints and they would be looking for offenders against his decrees. At Eid in 2007, Fazlullah reached the next level of aggressiveness and he announced on this Eid two-legged animals will be sacrificed. So who were his targets? Who were the two-legged animals, meaning people, that he was sacrificing? He started killing political activists from secular and nationalist parties. And when it hit really close to home was when he killed a Khan who was a close friend of Malala's father. This man's name was Malak Bakht Baidar, and his body was found dumped in his family's graveyard with his hands and arms all broken. This was the first targeted killing in SWAT, and people said it was because he helped the army find Taliban hideouts. Soon enough, the militants would take over the villages. They would come in with megaphones and the police would flee. Because in a short time, they had taken over 59 villages and set up their own parallel administration. Which means that the policemen would get so scared from being killed that they would even announce in the newspapers that they have left the force. Malala was 13 and she would every day be hearing the news of a suicide bomber attacking an army truck of soldiers and civilians that would get killed. And every night as she would draw the curtains and just try to fall asleep and distance herself from this propaganda that she didn't sign up for, she would be falling asleep to the booms of cannons and the sounds of machine guns on the street. And when she would wake up and go to school, she found them still to be a safe haven for her. But even in school, some of her friends were dropping out because Fazlullah didn't want girls to go to school. He found it pointless. And when the schoolmasters and the teachers weren't following his directions, he started blowing up schools, usually at night after curfew when the children would be safe at home. What really moved Malala and shook her into action was when her hero Benazir Bhutto was killed. As the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Benazir was always outspoken about radicalization. She would hold speeches saying, we will defeat the forces of extremism and militancy with the power of the people. And Taliban, of course, wouldn't allow for this. So they sent a car to follow her with a suicide bomber inside that blew both cars up and Benazir was found assassinated on the spot. This is when Malala spoke to her dad and said, yes, before I would go to these conferences, these public speaking events, and kind of just listen to you. But now let's step into that circle. Let's speak with those public activists and let's start giving interviews. Let's start actually telling people about the real situation in Swat Valley. While Malala and her dad are speaking up on different public events, Fazlullah set up a new decree. He really nailed it to that wall. And this decree was that the girls can't go to school. It was forbidden for them, completely. Not a single girl can go to school. Schools for girls are under assault by the Taliban. I want to get my education and I want to become, become a doctor. <laughs> okay, easy, relax. And Malala was devastated. Education was 
everything to her. And now she realized not only do I need to stand up for my own future, but what I'm left with is not going onto the streets at all unless I am to join their cause, unless I am to go to their events or help them build their own mosques or police stations or their own administration. And every time I go onto the street myself, what I see is a row of dead bodies. This is now Handmaid's Tale, okay? We went from Hogwarts straight to freaking Handmaid's Tale because they would leave these bodies thrown out on the street, all broken, tortured, or whipped for the public to see. And then they would leave them there with the notes such as don't remove this body until 11 a.m. or you are next or threats like this is what happens to an army agent. So she was going crazy. She was like, if I go onto the roads, this is what I see. I see dead bodies, I see the checkpoints, I see the armed soldiers. If I'm at home, my mom is driving me insane because she's thinking about all of these scenarios about what to do if the Taliban was to actually barge in. And she's saying that she's going to start sleeping with a knife underneath her mattress. So I need to go to school. I need to go back to school. I need to speak up about this. And during these dark times, this BBC radio presenter in the area reached out to Ziaudin, to her dad. And he said, you are a school owner, you have influence. Can you find either a teacher or a student that would write up a diary about the real experience in the Swat Valley? Malala's first diary entry appeared on the 3rd of January 2009 under the heading I am afraid. I had a terrible dream last night filled with military helicopters and Taliban. I have had such dreams since the launch of the military operation in SWAT. She also described something that happened to her on her way from school. I heard a man behind me saying, I will kill you. I quickened my pace and after a while I looked back to see if he was following me. To my huge relief, I saw he was speaking on the phone. He must have been talking to someone else. Luckily for Malala, and unfortunately for Fazlullah, people spreading propaganda aren't usually the best at doing business. Because the closure of schools, and rather banning girls to go to schools, where wasn't really profitable, was it, moron? It meant the loss of business. So Fazlullah caved in and he allowed girls up to the year four, up to the age of 10, to be going to school. Malala at this point was in year five. So she was older, so she would go to school pretending to be younger. And she knew that she will have cover from her teachers and from her dad. And she finally felt like she's standing up against the cause. Now, a peace deal. A form of ceasefire happened that would develop the further course of actions. Fazlullah and his men said that if the government imposes Sharia law, that the militants would stop fighting. So the peace deal has been signed and Malala and her family finally thought, okay, it's coming down. There's no more war. The gunfire outside of our house is celebratory gunfire. It's in celebration of this peace deal. That was until they heard the broadcast from the US and they heard the US's response. And the Americans thought that the people in Pakistan have now surrendered. They have surrendered to Taliban, to Sharia law, meaning they might be united now. They are a united force. So instead of the aid that the American forces would send through helicopters, through the army, now they were thinking more about airstrikes. It was time to move. On May the 5th, 2009, Malala and her family became IDPs, 
internally displaced people. About one half of 1.8 million of the population of the Swat Valley has left it for at least a couple of months, including Malala and her family. <laughs> and Malala often doesn't sleep at all. How sounds sleep, huh? Right. Night. Good night. Sometimes I think that I will hide in the bathroom and I will call to police and they will come and they will save my father. And sometimes I think that uh, I will tell my father that you hide in the cupboard and they will not check the cupboard. And, <laughs> and I have many thoughts. Okay, like that. And when I'm not at night uh, at your home then, what happens? Uh, we are feeling that we are in a war zone. We hear a big blast and uh, we just sit in our beds and then we sleep again. And so this hide and seek goes on uh, all the night. And that's our life. That's our life. In the next two months, the family would stay in four different locations, including her aunt's and uncle's place, including the houses of her dad's correspondents. In these new cities, Malala would start going to school, she would go for a couple of weeks, they would switch cities, she would start going to their school, and even though she was living in these guest houses, she knew she should be grateful because there are many people that are just left out on the streets, in the camps, sleeping in sleeping bags and queuing for hours for water and food in order to escape their situation back home. But it was at one of these guest houses that she spent her 12th birthday and she realized that everybody forgot, which kind of shook her to this whole situation. How different her 11th birthday had been and how in a year her life has just completely changed. Three months after leaving the valley, on the 24th of July 2009, they were told by their prime minister that the Taliban has been cleared out. So... A lot of them return, including Malala's family. Tomorrow, Ehmed will return to Swat. Several days later, Zaudin will follow. Okay. I dream going to school. I dream that when I will unlock the uh, door of my house, belongings which were there, uh, will they be safe or not? Will the chickens, two chickens, will be alive or not? After three months of separation and anxiety, the families finally reunited. Today is 24th of July and we are going to our home page after three months. So it's the very, it is the very precious day for me. But there's one more stop before returning home. Zawadin and Malala, with other grassroots activists, are invited to meet Richard Holbrook. Are you from Mindoro? Yeah. President Obama's top so, official in the region. How old are you? I'm 20. 12 years old. Yeah. I will request you all, and respected ambassador, I will request you that if you can help us in our education, so please help us. We've pledged well over a billion dollars for economic aid. We're working with your government on the electrical problem. But uh, your country faces a lot of problems, <laughs> as you all know. When the family reaches the valley, they're overwhelmed. After three months, we are looking at it. <laughs> Never thought 
Some of the houses are blasted and they are shooted by the army because they, um, there were Taliban in their houses. The city is vacant. <laughs> I can't imagine it. How is it? We never saw this city like this. Never at midnight. Never, never at midnight even. This is without human beings. With no life. Really, we don't know what is there inside our home. Because uh, we have heard that the majority of the homes have been looted by the looters. Oh my god. Come on. It's like a jungle. It's like jungle. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The kids rush to check on their pet chickens. Are they here? Our chicks are died. Malala? 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 After she collects herself, Malala checks on her schoolwork. These are my notebooks. Everything is safe. So the chickens died, but you got your books? Yeah. I think the books are more precious. So I think uh, the people lived here. I don't know who lived here, but the pe people who lived here are very dirty. They sent out their room. It's unclear who infiltrated the school. Oof. Was it the Taliban or was it the military? The print of a very big shoe. I can't it doesn't really matter. For the past year, Zawadin has felt trapped between both sides. On its right side, please, Malala. This is the... We just... Oh, please. What happened? Oh, my God. What's this? What are they? They are the heads of some goat's house. Someone knocks at the door. Zawadin becomes nervous. No one should enter, okay? Don't open it. Don't open it. Malala searches for clues to the identities of the intruders. Then she finds the answer. And they have written something in the diary of my friend. This is written that I am proud to be a Pakistani and a soldier of Pakistan Army. S-U-L-G-E-R. He don't know the spelling of soldier. They have written so many poetry. Some love one, some love two. I love one, that is you. And my friend is uh, the age of me. She don't know what is love. So I was very really proud of uh, my army that uh, the army protect us. But um, when I see my school in this uh, way, so I'm very shameful of my army. A few weeks after the school was back in operation, thanks to actually Malala writing a letter to this general, to get funding again for her dad to fund the school, fund all of the ruins, and also to pay all of these teachers, because they were absent for three months in the end. The school was asked to take part in district trial assembly, which was set up by UNICEF. The school had an election for a speaker, and Malala won. 
And participating in this would mean that the assembly was elected for a year and that they would meet almost every month. Her and the other students would be passing resolutions to end child labor and asking for help to send the disabled and street children to school and also to reconstruct all of the schools that were destroyed by the Taliban. Then, just as she felt things were going back to normal and she saw her purpose in life again, another flood hit the city. In this flood, around 2,000 people drowned and 40 million people were affected, losing their homes, schools being destroyed. This flood, unlike the previous one, wasn't just destructive, but it also meant that they would have no clean water and no electricity for some time. But if anything, what this flood did expose was the signs that Taliban never really truly left. Two more schools would end up being blown up, foreign aid workers from a Christian group would be kidnapped, and Ziauddin's friend, the vice-chancellor of Swat University, was killed in his office. Despite of the gruesomeness that Malala was either hearing or witnessing on a daily basis, she still loved her Twilight videos, she still watched Ugly Betty, and she was kind of obsessed about banal things, like why can't she grow any further? At the age of 13, it just seemed like she had stopped growing. She kind of would stand against the wall and measure herself every day, and she just wasn't growing an inch. So she started doing what she did best, and that was praying to become taller. Because for her, the height wasn't an issue. It was the fact that she was speaking at so many events, and she just didn't look authoritative at her height. So one day, just as she is standing against the wall, measuring herself, seeing if she has miraculously grown overnight, her father barges into the house and tells her that Osama bin Laden has been found and killed. The seals that shot him flew his body in the helicopter and dropped him in the sea. The two brothers and one of bin Laden's grown-up sons were also killed, and his wives and children were tied up and left behind to be taken into Pakistani custody. So at first, you see this as a jolt of happiness, like everything is great, Obama is happy. But then you realize it appears Americans have done this on their own, meaning not consulting the Pakistani people. And that they have also seen the fact that Osama bin Laden was living so close to their military army, not somewhere far away, out of sight of everybody, again made them believe that maybe Pakistani people were again siding with Taliban and covering for a terrorist that was Osama bin Laden. A few months after this, in October 2011, Ziauddin received an email informing him that Malala is one of the five nominees for the International Peace Prize of Kids' Rights. Soon after that, she was also invited by a chief minister of Punjab to speak in Lahore at an education gala. Malala wore pink in this gala and for the first time spoke publicly about how they defied the Taliban and carried on going to school secretly. I know the importance of education because my pens and books were taken from me by force. But the girls of SWAT are not afraid of anyone. We have continued with our education. She was surprised to learn that after this speech, she has won half a million rupees, and also the government awarded her Pakistan's first ever national peace prize. This prize has been named after Malala, and because of all of the events that she has participated in, by the end of that year, she amassed a lot of money for the family. And as you expected, all of it went into the school. 
All of it went into building a science lab and a library. Now you hear about these accomplishments and you think like, I haven't achieved this at my sorry age of almost 29. But Malala saw her accomplishments and her awards just as little battles. And she knew that she must concentrate on the bigger picture, which was the war. She put it better. Let me read this out. But my fight wasn't over. I was reminded of our history lessons in which we learned about the loot or bounty an army enjoys when a battle is won. I began to see the awards and recognition just like that. They were little jewels without much meaning. I needed to concentrate on winning the war. May I remind you she's 14 here. The only new thing that she got for herself was a new bed and a cabinet. And they bought some tooth implants for her mother. Everything else they invested into the school or into the people that needed help. As she was about to use some of this money in order to open up her own education foundation, Malala was also featured in a New York Times documentary. It's not really long. You should look it up online. It just follows her and her dad and kind of interviews both of them. And it shows you their day-to-day living. It shows you their household. It shows you the streets and everything we spoke about this video. People's bodies just being thrown on the streets. Weeplashing that are taking place in the city center. But if there's one thing that you should watch this documentary for, it is for one-to-ones with Malala and her dad. Because she just breaks down in so many interviews. She just starts crying. And it's just so heartbreaking. It is her early teenage years, and she shouldn't have witnessed any of this. One person that has seen this documentary was this Pakistani journalist called Shela Anjun. And she appeared to speak to Malala and her father and to interview her. And during this interview, she asked Ziauddin, did you know the Taliban threatened this innocent girl? And they had no idea what she was on about. So they went online and checked. And indeed, Taliban had actually publicly threatened to two women. One was Shad Begum, an activist, and the other one was Malala. Her dad, upon hearing this, immediately started seeking advice. Like, maybe I should send her to a boarding school. Or maybe I should send you to your aunt and uncle, like, in this village. Like, I need to distance myself from the family. Yet again, just like we did in those three months. Because now you're being targeted. Maybe we should keep your profile low for a while. But Malala wasn't threatened. She knew that these threats were at first directed at everybody, and now they were more just triangulated at the people that were speaking against Taliban and the army. Or rather, she was pretending not to have been phased in front of her friends and family. What they wouldn't know is that every night when everybody was asleep, she would check every door and window, she would go outside and make sure that the gate was locked, She would check all of the rooms one by one, and as her room was in front of the house, she would leave her curtains open, even though her dad advised her not to. She said if they were going to kill me, they would have done it in 2009. But she was also worried that somebody was to put leather against the house, to climb over the wall and go through a window, hence why she was checking every single room. So this is where we pick up with Malala on that bus in that afternoon in October 2012. When they turned around the corner, Moniba asked, where are all the people? There was a lot of chatter on the bus, and then suddenly all of it stopped. The last thing she remembered was that she was thinking about the revision that she needed to do for the next day of exams, And the sounds in her head were not crack, crack, crack of three bullets, but rather chop, 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 drip, 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 
of the men severing the heads of chicken and them dropping into the dirty street one by one. As she was shot and being transported to the hospital, Raman was actually in school, because as I mentioned, she was illiterate. She was just learning to write and read again. And her dad was actually holding a conference for the private schools association. And as he received a phone call, he didn't stay to take any further questions. He just immediately, abruptly left for the hospital. From that hospital that was only five minutes away from their house, Malala had to be transported to the intensive care unit to Pakistan. And they had to transport her with a helicopter. And this detail just got me. As they got onto the helicopter, the headmistress in the school, her dad, and some other people that were present, well, the mom was observing this helicopter flying over from her house. And when her mom heard that she has been hurt, she was having her reading lesson with Miss Ulfat and struggling to learn words like book and apple. I don't know why that resonated with me so much. I think it's just like an ordinary thing that you would be doing and then your life just gets completely interrupted. And at first there was some misinformation. People have speculated that she has been shot in the foot. So the mom would go to the grandmother and sort of like spread this misinformation because nobody really knew what the hell has happened. The surgeons told her dad that they need to operate on her, that her brain was swelling and that they needed to remove the bullet from it. So her dad said, of course, just save my little girl, like whatever you need to do. The next day, just as her dad was receiving the good news, which was that she's still able to move, meaning her motor functions are intact and that the operation worked, well, the Taliban released a statement. They assumed responsibility for the attack and said, we carried out this attack and anybody who speaks against us will be attacked in the same way. She is bleeding in grave condition, but two hours pass before a helicopter can deliver her from the local hospital to a military surgeon. He spends five hours trying to relieve the swelling on her brain and remove tiny clots. By a strange coincidence, there is someone in Pakistan for the first time. A top specialist in pediatric trauma from England, Dr. Fiona Reynolds, with her colleague, Dr. Javid Kayani. They've been sitting in long governmental meetings on medical programs when suddenly Dr. Reynolds is told to race out and try to save the life of a famous and dying child. The tubes have given Malala an infection. The machines are improperly set. Her blood is clotting. Her lungs and kidneys are beginning to fail. She had become septic. It was obvious that she had a very serious life-threatening infection. Dr. Reynolds makes a risky recommendation to take the gravely ill girl on an eight-hour trip to a high-tech hospital in England. From another Muslim country comes a life-giving offer. The Emir of the United Arab Emirates sends one of his royal planes outfitted as a hospital, a state-of-the-art intensive care unit. And for the entire eight-hour flight to England, Dr. Reynolds and Dr. Kayani keep Malala alive breath by breath, organ by organ. And they also have noticed something else that defies possibility. The bullet took a path that simply cannot be believed. The chances of being shot at point-blank range in the head and that happening, I don't know. But it is amazing, truly amazing. I, I don't know why she survived. Maybe his hand was shaking. He hit her there. So it goes under the skin, near the skull. A bullet traveling 1,000 feet per second slips under Malala's skin. But as it heads toward her brain, that bone turns out to be so strong and curved, it forces the bullet to ricochet away. 
and instead smashes her eardrum, severs the nerve in her face, and hits her shoulder. The fact that she didn't die on the spot or very soon afterwards, and to my mind, is nothing short of miraculous. Miracle? If you believe in miracles, yes. After these two doctors examined Malala, Fiona actually pulled Dr. Javid on the side and she said she's salvageable, but she needs aftercare that this hospital can't provide. And Fiona speaking to Javid suggests we need to transport her to the Queen Elizabeth's Hospital in Birmingham. And this is the hospital that was famous for treating British soldiers that were wounded in Afghanistan and Iraq. Let us ring our hospital back in Birmingham, UK, and see if we can host her, see if she can get the intensive care there and get the aftercare that she needs. Otherwise, her organs might start collapsing one by one. While she's getting transported to this hospital for the next eight hours, the world learns about Malala's assassination attempt. Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General, called it a heinous and cowardly act. Many other influential people condemned Taliban's actions. President Barack Obama described the shooting as reprehensible, disgusting, and tragic. But Pakistani press wasn't so kind. They started suspecting whether or not she was actually shot. And they show this photograph of her sitting next to Ambassador Richard Holbrook from that meeting that I played earlier on as the evidence of her hobnobbing with U.S. military authority. And they started calling her an American stooge. When Malala woke up in the Birmingham hospital after the next operation, she just felt so disorientated. She wanted to speak, but she was really weak. But what she mostly wanted to know was first where she is, because she just recognized a bunch of white people looking clean and polished, as she said, walking around her. And also, where is her family? But then when, you know, her mind was clear, she started thinking, who the hell is going to pay for all of this? Like, we definitely don't have this money at home. Like, how much would even such a treatment cost? And because her left side of the face, both her ear and her eye were hurting and her eye was watering and her ear would sometimes start bleeding, she would kind of, like, tell people to move always to her right side. And it was when Fiona came in that she kind of showed as if she wanted to write something down, so Fiona gave her a notepad and a pen. Soon Fiona would bring a mobile phone so that they would ring her father. And Malala would mostly just listen. She wasn't really forming words at the time. But she just really wanted to know why her parents aren't there yet. Like, what seems to be the problem with the documents, with the government? And it would only be later that she found out that this was postponed because of the interior minister, Rahman Malik, who was hoping to fly with them so that they could have a joint press conference at the hospital and so that Pakistani government would, of course, look really good while Malala is literally waiting to be reunited with her family. And also this minister really wanted to make sure that the family doesn't ask for the political asylum in Britain because this would be very embarrassing for their government. It's just the priorities. Her mother didn't know what asylum was, and her dad literally just wanted to be reunited with his daughter. So he was like, no, we never had any plans. We didn't plan for this. I don't know how to explain to you, but we really didn't plan for our daughter to almost die. Malala realized lying in bed, spending her days watching DVDs, Bandit Like Beckham, Shark's Tale, Shrek movies, and also chatting with doctors about what the bulge on her stomach was. 
to which they reply that it is actually part of her skull. So they need to let her skull heal and then they need to put that part of her skull back a few months later with another operation. She realized in that hospital that what Taliban had done was made her campaign global. Because while she was lying in the hospital bed, Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of Britain, launched a petition under the slogan I am Alala to demand no child be denied schooling by 2015. Beyonce wrote Malala a card and posted a photo of her on Facebook, Selena Gomez tweeted her, and Madonna dedicated her song. Malala even received a message from her favorite actress and social activist Angelina Jolie, and she couldn't wait to tell her friends, because at this moment she still thought that she was going straight home from this hospital. Among these cards and presents, there were a ton of toys and presents from other people all over the world, boxes of chocolates, teddy bears brought to her every single day. But the most precious parcel of all was this one that came from Benazir's Bhutto's children. Inside, there were two shawls that belonged to their mom. And Malala just sat on her bed and she just buried her head into these shawls, just trying to sniff her perfume. And she even found the hair of Benazir's in one of the shawls and that just made it so much more special for her because both of them were technically fighting for the same cause. And one was successfully assassinated, but the other one survived. 16 days after the shooting, her parents finally made it to Birmingham. They immediately went and the doctors set her up to sort of try to speak to her parents. And immediately what they noticed was that Malala couldn't smile. And not for the lack of trying. It just seemed like her face wouldn't do the action. Rather, that side of the face where she was shot at. And her dad started panicking. He was crying when they went back to the hostel room. He said how Taliban is really cruel. Because you can give somebody lungs, even eyes, but you can't restore their smile. So they started speaking with doctors as to what can be done towards this so that his daughter can smile again. As she was preparing to go into another operation where they needed to work on the nerve that controlled that side of her face, the Pakistani government revealed that Malala's attacker was a Talib called Ataullah Khan. And he was arrested in 2009 during the military operation, but would later be freed within three months. She found out that only two people were arrested after she was shot, the driver of the bus and a school accountant who took a call from the bus driver to say what had happened. And the whole family was really upset by this. Why the hell arrest a bus driver? It will later be discovered that they arrested him because they believed he can identify some people. Again, such bullshit. But not arrest the person that actually shot Malala. A day before she was to go into this operation to operate on her nerve, United Nations announced they were designating 10th of November, one month and a day after shooting Malala Day. This operation that took place on 11th of November took eight and a half hours. The operation went well, but it would take three months with daily facial exercises for her face to even start working bit by bit, that left side of her face, that is. Two days after that operation, President of Pakistan visited her in the hospital and he said that she shouldn't be worried about the bills, that the government will pay up what was $200,000 in bills. And not just that, but the government also rented an apartment in the center of Birmingham so that her parents can move out of the hostel where they were staying so far. 
So it was final. It wasn't safe for Malala to return home. She would eventually have to move out from that hospital, but not to Pakistan, rather to Birmingham to live there with her family, because that was her new home now. The Pakistani president, Aziz Zardari, gave her dad a post as education attaché, so he would have a salary to live in the UK, and also a diplomatic passport, so that he wouldn't need to seek asylum. And Gordon Brown, now with that UN position, also asked Ziauddin to become his advisor. So, in 2013, Malala would be discharged from the hospital in early January, and she would move to live with her family again. This apartment is in this building in a modern square in the center of Birmingham, and it is on the 10th floor, which was higher than any of them has ever been to before. On the 2nd of February 2013, she went in for that last operation that was to take the part of the skull off her tummy and put it back onto her head. And also, because her hearing hasn't been improving, this doctor put, like, an electronic advice that was to be fitted into her ear later. Medical terms. She could hear better after this. That's all you need to know. In 2013, which is also when this book was published, Malala and her family moved from that flat on the 10th floor to this house. But they still never felt at home. They still miss every single part of the Swat Valley, which is something that a lot of people will find controversial, especially, like, a lot of their family members. But if we go back to the beginning of this video and where I went down in history in order to explain to you how important hospitality is, well, if you are watching this from any country in the East, you probably aren't aware of how unfriendly people here are. Everybody kind of minds their own business. So, Malala felt lonely, but she could resort to Skype calls with her friends back home, and she obviously had to continue school in the UK. But for somebody like her mom, it was extremely hard. She needed to acclimate to this new culture. She needed to learn how to use technology. She couldn't speak English, so she had to learn that. And on top of all of that, she can't go to the bazaar with her friends. She doesn't have anybody, and she was extremely sociable. People would be in and out their house constantly. Her dad probably acclimated the best, because he would still spend much of his time going to conferences on education. And I love Malala's comment in this book, because she says, where people before wanted to hear him because of me, now it's the wonder. Now it's the other way around. I used to be known as his daughter. Now he's known as my father. She found schooling to be equally challenging, but a lot of the subjects would be similar to what she was learning at home. It's just that here in the UK, they would be using PowerPoints and different technology instead of chalkboards. But still, what I find so fascinating is that she still sees all of the awards that she gets, all of the accomplishments, all of the diplomas, just as small wins. Small wins towards a war, towards a further goal. It's just that she was seeing it a bit differently in SWAT, but she still kind of translates that same logic to her new schooling in Birmingham. I am grateful for the prizes, but they only remind me how much work still needs to be done to achieve the goal of education for every boy and girl. I don't want to be thought of as the girl who was shot by the Taliban, but the girl who fought for education. This is the cause to which I want to devote my life. On her 16th birthday, she was in New York to speak to the United Nations. Malala Day is not my day. Today 
is the day of every woman, every boy, and every girl who have raised their voice for their rights. On the 9th of October 2012, the Taliban shot me on the left side of my forehead. They shot my friends too. They thought that the bullet would silence us, but they failed. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The terrorists thought that they would change my aims and stop my ambitions, but nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died Strength, power, and courage was born. Let us pick up our books and our pens, she said. They are our most powerful weapon. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. In 2014, with her dad, she founded a Malala Fund, a charity dedicated to giving every girl an opportunity to achieve the future that she chooses. 2014 was also the year when she received the Nobel Peace Prize and became the youngest ever Nobel Prize winner. Between then and 2018, and Sanula Ehsan, who was the former Pakistan Taliban spokesman, who is also responsible for the shooting of Malala, was arrested in 2017, but he managed to escape in January 2020. 2018 was an epic girl for Malala. She began studying philosophy, politics, and economics at the University of Oxford. I have to say, after reading this book, she speaks a lot about how obsessed she was with physics. I kind of want to know if somebody knows the answer as to why she never went to study physics. Like, I mean, maybe she just saw better potential here in terms of, like, her future career. Did I just answer my own question? Yes, I did. Thank you. Good. In 2020, she graduated from Oxford, and she said that she will always treasure her time at Lady Margaret Hall, the lectures, the club meetings, balls and late nights, some that she spent finishing papers, and some chatting with friends in the dorm. And she said that with more than 130 million girls out of school today, there is still a lot more work to be done. And that she hopes that we will all join her in the fight for education and equality. The latest I could find on Malala from 2021, I think it is, is that she signed a deal with Apple TV to produce dramas and documentaries that would focus on women and children. And I just wanted to finish this video on one of the Pashto tapes, like wisdom sayings. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. This is from the book, and it's from the moment when she's in the hospital in Birmingham. Her father visits her, and he's trying to talk to her to see, you know, if she can formulate sentences to assess the brain damage. And he asks her, can you sing one of the tapay? And she actually says, I have one in mind because I would like to rewrite it. And he's like, which one? If the men cannot win the battle, oh, my country, then the women will come forth and win you an honor. She wanted to change it too. Whether the men are winning or losing the battle, oh, my country, the women are coming and the women will win you an honor. And that is... The story, the inspirational epic story of Malala Yousafzai. I just, I just got, I'm so glad. I really wanted to read this book for like the longest time. And I'm so glad I read it. And then that, yeah, 
I just shared it with you. It's, it's something else. So I hope this story inspires you in some way. I talk about heroes rarely compared to how often I talk about criminals, but I hope this one inspires you or at least makes you feel grateful if you are just limited cunts in your head. At least that it makes you feel grateful about the fact that you didn't see even remotely a quarter of the atrocities that this little girl has seen by the age of 15. And also maybe it inspires you to write more eloquently, like, you know, scripts, just in life in general. Again, talking to myself here a bit. <laughs> How can you end the video, like, with such an inspirational quote, like a wisdom that is passed on to centuries in Pashto culture and then be like, scripts, you know. <sighs> you still have a lot to learn, okay? Okay? Yes. We're all Malala's pupils. We're all Malala. Okay. <laughs> Sounds aggressive. And on slightly aggressive and energetic note, make sure you like and subscribe to this video for more videos like this. Let me know if you want more hero stories. And I might put some in the description. Check those out. Like, I have a few, you know, on this channel or on the podcast channel. I do have a few. And I always get, like, super hyped and emotional. Because all of the stories that I have done have been on really brave, inspirational females. Fuck, man. That's, that's truly what it is. Yeah. It's like, how can you end this video and be like, fuck, man. I mean, women, you know. <laughs> the conclusion of the day, women, you know. Without us, men really wouldn't be able to exist. So, you know, if you catch my drift, we kind of are powerful as fuck. So on that note, <laughs> I'm gonna get out of this video. Before I say something really dumb or just dumb down this video that was like inspirational, it should leave on that exact note. And I will be seeing you guys next week. No, <laughs> bye. <laughs> women, you know? You know, just fuck men. That was her fucking saying, like, out of Pashto and wisdom, she's like, women.